I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Millions of people are sniffling and sneezing or in the middle of flu season. There's also RSV, COVID, and colds. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. There are hundreds of cough, cold, and flu medicines on pharmacy shelves. Are over-the-counter products helpful or counterproductive? A long time ago, people believed that a fever was helpful rather than harmful. Sauna bathing is highly valued in Finland and other Nordic countries. Is there any evidence that raising body temperature could be helpful against viral infections? What about vitamin C, vitamin D, or zinc? Can they help? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, what to do if you catch the flu. In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. As Americans settle back in at home after traveling over the holidays, many find that they brought home some unwelcome presents. Infectious disease experts are warning that a triple demic appears to be well underway. Seasonal influenza activity is high and still rising in most parts of the country. In addition, wastewater surveillance shows that COVID-19 cases are widespread and surging. Cold viruses are also circulating, along with respiratory syncytial virus. Other infections, including strep, measles, and whooping cough, are also causing trouble. It's hardly any wonder that so many people are under the weather at this time. Millions of people are now suffering from long COVID. Symptoms can include fatigue, shortness of breath, cough, heart palpitations, brain fog, trouble sleeping, joint and muscle pain, and inability to exercise. A new study published in Nature Communications reveals that mitochondrial dysfunction contributes to something called post-exertional malaise. Mitochondria are the energy factories within cells. Many people with long COVID can no longer exercise. Even modest exertion can result in exhaustion. Dutch scientists recruited two groups of volunteers. In one group were 25 people with long COVID. In the other group were healthy people who had recovered from COVID and had no residual symptoms. All the participants worked out for 10 to 15 minutes on stationary bikes. Muscle biopsies taken a week before the exercise session and the following day showed significant differences. The mitochondria of those with long COVID were not functioning normally, and as a result, they began making lactate for exhausted muscles. Muscles of healthy people did not need lactate for this short exercise bout. The biopsy also showed significant muscle damage in the people with long COVID. The researchers found evidence of autoimmune attack within these muscles. In addition, the muscles of long COVID volunteers had lots of microclots, especially in the post-exercise biopsy. There is, as yet, no treatment for post-exertional malaise or any of the other symptoms of long COVID. Bottled water has become very popular. That's because some people believe it's healthier and others find it more convenient. A significant number of Americans worry about the quality of their tap water and think that bottled water is better. It's estimated that Americans buy over 40 billion one-liter bottles of water each year. But is water in plastic bottles actually safer than tap water? A new study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences reports that a typical one-liter bottle of water contains about 240,000 particles of nanoplastics. Nanoplastics are even smaller than microplastics, less than a micron wide. For comparison, a human hair is about 80 microns across. The researchers believe that these teensy plastic bits are coming from the bottle itself, as well as the reverse osmosis membrane filter used to get rid of other contaminants. Unfortunately, they don't have information on the potential health consequences of consuming nanoplastics. 
Last summer, a team of researchers published a study of diagnostic errors in medicine. They estimated that misdiagnoses harm an estimated 800,000 Americans each year. They concluded that 5 to 11 percent of diagnoses are wrong. Now, a new study published in JAMA Internal Medicine suggests that estimate may be low. These investigators reviewed medical records of more than 2,400 patients in 29 different hospitals. These were people who were transferred to the ICU or who died. The analysis of their records revealed that 23% of the initial diagnoses were mistaken. These errors harmed or contributed to the deaths of 18% of the patients in the study. The authors conclude, in this multicenter study of a selected group of medical patients who died in hospital or who were transferred to an ICU, diagnostic errors were common and associated with patient harm. The lead investigator admitted that diagnostic errors were more common and more deadly than the team had expected. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. It's the sixth season. People are coughing, sneezing, and wheezing. That's because we're in the middle of a triple-demic, flu, respiratory syncytial virus, and COVID-19. Well, actually, Terry, there are even more pathogens making people sick this winter. The CDC is reporting strep, whooping cough, and measles. And, of course, don't forget the common cold. There are hundreds of rhinoviruses, adenoviruses, and coronaviruses that can cause cold symptoms. And that's why we're talking with Dr. Roger Schwelt. He is an associate clinical professor at the University of California, Riverside School of Medicine and an assistant clinical professor at the School of Medicine and Allied Health at Loma Linda University. Dr. Schwelt is board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary diseases, critical care medicine, and sleep medicine through the American Board of Internal Medicine. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Roger Schwelt. It's good to be back. Thanks for letting me on. Dr. Schwell, before we start talking with you, I would like to ask a little bit about MedCram, how it formed, what your role is, and most specifically, how you became so talented at explaining complex medical issues in ways that people can actually understand. And that's not just physicians and nurses and pharmacists and all those other health professionals, but also the average walking around person. Your ability to explain is unbelievable. Well, uh, thank you so much. It's a, it's a talent, I guess. Um, but in, in 2012, I was uh, a, the clinical professor. And as such, I had students that rotated with me. And in, at that time, I had a student, PA student from Loma Linda. Uh, his name was Kyle Allred. And uh, he had a knack for understanding the business aspect of things and what the needs were. At the time, he was in PA school, and he was getting PowerPoint presentation after PowerPoint presentation. And so he really keyed in when he when he joined our rotation on the ability for me to teach, I guess. And he he came to me with this idea of starting a YouTube channel where we would explain things clearly in a way that uh, people, not just to memorize it, but to understand it for life. So we started that YouTube channel in 2012, quickly grew into a, a website where we would teach uh, on topics that would be uh, available. And the students would download it or they would uh, join our, our group and, and it was sort of out there. And then COVID hit. And of course, everybody at that point was a student and wanted to learn more. And so we grew by leaps and bounds. And, and here we are today. And I Ticket MedCram suggests that for medical students or whatever medical professional, health professional, getting ready for an exam, your explanations allow them to pass those exams that they might otherwise have failed. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's not just for medical students or even you know physicians, although they do uh, certainly take those classes, uh, respiratory therapists, nursing students, all of that. We also have a lot of people who are just really interested in learning about the human body, 
who are interested about their body, they may have uh, some medical issues and they want to learn more about that from a physician standpoint. And so that they log on and they're part of our audience as well. We, we do it in a way that really helps just about anybody who's listening. Well, that is perfect for us because that's our listening audience too. People who are interested in how their bodies work and how well, what we can learn about health. So let me start by suggesting that we're coming into that time of year when respiratory tract infections become extremely common. And people will be suffering from flu and especially from a lot of colds. What causes sore throat, stuffy nose, and cough? Yeah, it's, it's uh, almost certainly viruses. Uh, and, and you just reminded me of, of when they come into the emergency room, what we do, we, we swab them and we send off uh, a litany of tests. Actually, it's, just, it's one test, but it tests for a litany of different uh, uh, causes. So there are, there's the flu, there is uh, all sorts of viruses, cold viruses, basic coronaviruses. So not the coronavirus that we've just went through in the pandemic, but regular cold viruses, which are coronaviruses. Uh, human metanumovirus is another one. Anyway, there's a, there's a list, 16 or 17 of them. They all have a very specific uh, genetic signature. And we can literally get a report back in minutes that says which virus happens to infected this person. Most of those viruses we don't have treatments for specifically other than supportive treatments, but a few of them have been studied and are very common. And for things like the common flu, uh, for things like um, uh, obviously with COVID-19, we do actually have some treatments that are um, available to help those symptoms uh, abate more quickly. You use the word common, and it drives me a little wild because we also call the average cold a common cold, and the average person doesn't have access to the tests that you have in the emergency department. There are over 160 rhinoviruses that can cause a cold. There are parainfluenza viruses and teroviruses that doesn't count influenza or RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. And then there are, you know, there are other things out there. So when we say, oh, the common cold, we're actually talking about a lot of different viruses that are contributing. And I'm just wondering, are there any ways that we can enhance our immune reaction to all of those nasty infectious agents? Yes, yes, there absolutely is. In fact, there's emerging evidence that um, that we can, although we don't have the highest level of evidence. Let me let me tell you about a story that is really interesting about this, and it is the story of interferon. So, interferon is a cytokine that your body produces when it gets infected with a virus, and it could be any of those viruses that you just mentioned. It could be any of the variants of COVID nineteen that we all know about. And interferon is a major block. It's a major defense mechanism that our body has against viral infections. So much so that if any self-respecting virus wants to infect our body, it has to get around interferon. And sure enough, just a, just a few months ago, a paper was published showing exactly which gene in COVID-19, uh, it was the MAC1 gene specifically, is the, is the gene that actually helps SARS-CoV-2 infect the human body and get around interferon. So a logical explanation or a logical conclusion would be is if we could somehow enhance our body's ability to increase interferon, that might not work just for COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, but just about all of them. And in fact, that is the case. So there was a recent trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine showing that in COVID-19 patients who had outpatient forms of COVID-19, if they were to be given just one injection of a form of interferon, that would dramatically reduce by 50% the number of ER visits or, and hospitalizations. So proof of concept showing that interferon is actually very beneficial. Now, let's, let's back up 100 years. Uh, because there's been recent studies that showed that basically if you heat up the human body, if you heat up the core body temperature, this dramatically increases almost tenfold 
the amount of interferon that is released by lymphocytes that are under uh, activation from an infection. And uh, it's interesting because much of the treatments, if you look at the turn of the last century, the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, in major hospitals, uh, dealt with specifically heating up the body using uh, something called fomentations or hydrotherapy, where people became ill. And uh, there's a number of stories that I was able to find uh, at that time of during the, the influenza pandemic, some remarkable stories about whole uh, communities that did this type of treatment, hydrotherapy, heating up the, the body, enhancing, they didn't know it at the time, but enhancing interferon. And the, the results were quite astounding, even to the point of they were written up in newspaper articles, and you can actually get these newspaper articles today. Um, so what happened to this? Why did we stop doing this? Well, well um, yes, go ahead. I'm thinking that some of what people have been doing since that time has probably been counterproductive because a lot of people, when they start to come down with a cold, they take something to lower their fever. In fact, almost all of the over-the-counter cold and cough remedies have what we would call a fever reducer, whether it's an NSAID or whether it's aspirin. And it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> that, that may make you feel a little better temporarily, but could it have been counterproductive? It, not only could it have been, I believe it is counterproductive. Um, there's an actual very interesting dichotomy. A gentleman by the name of Wells Rubel, who was a, a physician at the time in the Northeast of the pandemic, and he was comparing what he was doing in the sanitariums at the time, which was exactly what we just talked about, versus what they were doing in the army hospitals uh, treating the flu with aspirin. And aspirin, as you know, as well as NSAIDs, are both are very adept at killing fevers and, and reducing that fever ability. And the the um, case fatality rates were six times higher in the army hospitals than they were in these sanitariums in the Northeast. Wow. I mean, that's just astonishing. Well, we're going to take a short break. But when we come back, we're going to ask you, well, is there any way to raise temperature in a safe manner? What about the Finns? They love sauna baths. Well, is there any evidence to suggest that might be beneficial? Get ready. We're going to ask you those questions and many more about colds, flu, and other viruses. You're listening to Dr. Roger Schwelt, Associate Clinical Professor at the University of California Riverside School of Medicine and an Assistant Clinical Professor at the School of Medicine and Allied Health at Loma Linda University. He's founder and principal presenter of the medical education company MedCram, which provides continuing medical education to countless health professionals. His passion is demystifying medical concepts. After the break, we'll learn more about why raising instead of lowering body temperature is helpful. Could taking a sauna bath be good for the immune system? We'll find out if vitamin D has any benefits for the immune response to infection. Maybe that's why grandmothers used to dose their families with cod liver oil. It's a great source of vitamin D. Could chicken soup help you feel better? My mother used to swear by it. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. That was the sound of the NutriSense biosensor. That biosensor tracks your blood sugar and can help you learn how what you eat can affect your health along with your sleep and exercise habits. Managing blood glucose levels is crucial to staying healthy and feeling good. Keeping blood sugar within a moderate range makes a difference, and NutriSense can really help with that. The app is easy to use and helps you see how your meals and even your stress levels can change your blood sugar. Support from a NutriSense nutritionist can help you make sense of the patterns you see. Being able to see your own response to foods is much better than relying on a glycemic index table. And the easy-to-use NutriSense app makes the results clear. 
Using NutriSense to pay attention to my blood sugar helped me understand how to control it better. Anyone who wants to feel better and become healthier can benefit. You get a whole month of advice from a board-certified nutritionist, which is invaluable. NutriSense also provides handy learning modules to help you learn more about nutrition and get the most benefit from what you eat. Take charge of your nutrition today at NutriSense.com slash Pharmacy30, where data-driven insights meet personalized nutrition. You'll receive a $30 discount off your first month, which includes two CGM sensors, free shipping, and a month of professional nutritionist support. You can even use your FSA or HSA account for additional savings. That's NutriSense.com slash Pharmacy30. And thank you, NutriSense, for supporting today's show. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Cardio Health is offered in both convenient capsule and powder formats, with each serving containing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols to support heart health. More information at cocovia.com. Millions of years of evolution have favored raising body temperature to overcome infection. Reptiles can't mount a fever, so lizards bask in the sun to raise their temperature if they're exposed to pathogens. Prevent that defense mechanism, and they get sicker. Yet pharmaceutical companies brag that their cough, cold, and flu remedies contain fever reducers. Are such products counterproductive? Why has modern medicine turned its back on Mother Nature? We're talking with Dr. Roger Schwelt, an associate clinical professor at the University of California Riverside School of Medicine and an assistant clinical professor at the School of Medicine and Allied Health at Loma Linda University. He's the director of a sleep lab and is the medical director for the Crafton Hills College Respiratory Care Program. Dr. Schwelt is co-founder with Kyle Allred of MedCram, a medical education company with CME-accredited videos. So, Dr. Schwelt, what's the story on raising temperature and the fins and, and sauna baths? Yeah, so this is really interesting. And and you might just look at this from the 30,000-foot view. The, the societies that use this type of, of sauna and raising body temperatures and hydrotherapy are generally generally societies that don't get as much sun as perhaps you might at the at the more uh, equatorial cultures. So we see this in and obviously in Finland and to some degree also in Germany, Sweden, uh, Norway. And I believe that this is a anthropological uh, um, adaptation to the fact that they don't get as much sun to boost their immune systems and to enhance their immune systems. So uh, as you know, the Finns are very passionate about their sauna. The, in fact, uh, there was a, a statement made at one point that basically if, if everybody in Finland decided to go into a sauna all at the same time, there would be more than enough saunas to hold the entire population <laughs> at the same time. Um, so it's, it's something that they do when they do studies on sauna in Finland, the control group is actually people that just use it once a week. Right. Because yeah, they that's, can't that's find amazing. anyone in Finland who only, who doesn't use saunas. <laughs> exactly. And, and most of the research in this area has not been in the area of treating colds or infections, but rather in looking at things much bigger, actually, like all-cause mortality, cardiovascular disease. And the reason for this is because when you go into a sauna and you increase the temperature, your heart increases, your heart rate increases, and it's, all, it's basically like an exercise equivalent. So if you, don't, if you want the benefits of exercise, but you, you can't because either you have joint disease or arthritis, this is a great solution to actually use. Now, you have to be careful when you heat up the human body. And so the two biggest risks of, of doing this is that you could uh, induce arrhythmias if you are susceptible to arrhythmias. And this is the reason why it's very important that we do this not alone, 
but with somebody else there. Because if you start to feel like you're going to pass out or start to have something, you want to have somebody there to do this. And I think uh, uh, Matthew Perry comes as an example. He was in a hot tub and he was alone and he was found uh, dead, basically. And uh, this is something that uh, that whenever we do hydrotherapy or do sauna, it's good to have someone there. It's also important to get a note from your doctor to make sure that this is okay. Uh, the, the second thing in terms of risk is burning, obviously. So uh, as I was mentioning back at the turn of the last century, uh, one of the meccas, if you will, for this type of, of treatment in terms of hydrotherapy was the Battle Creek Sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. And uh, there are photographs that you can see of these huge treatment rooms with multiple baths and attendants doing all of this. And it showed them, they, they basically heat up these towels that are, are soaked in water and they, so they're almost steaming and they place these on the, on the body to basically cover them with these hot towels until they're brought to a, a sweat. And this is basically how you know that the body temperature is being elevated. And this was a treatment for tuberculosis before we had antibiotics. Is that right? This is actually a treatment for many multiple uh, uh, issues. So when when you had residual uh, viruses or infections of various sources, there was different techniques that were used. Probably the height of this is uh, is is a psychiatrist in Austria by the name of Wagner Joreg, who noticed in his uh, in his insane asylum that people with neurosyphilis actually got better when they had a fever for some reason. So he actually took people with malaria, took their blood out, injected it into his patients to induce a fever. And when he did so, these patients actually got cured of their neurosyphilis. And then he was able to quickly cure the, the malaria with, um, with quinine, which was well known at the time. This is all before penicillin. And for this work that he did in 1917, he 10 years later received the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1927. So this was something that was well recognized. It was sort of on its way. The, the irony is, is that the very next year in 1928, we had the discovery of penicillin, something that allowed us to give medications to uh, people with neurosyphilis specifically, and of course, a whole host of other uh, diseases with antibiotics. And that was much, much labor intensive, less labor intensive than, than doing hydrotherapy. And so it quickly replaced that type of therapy because um, there was quite a bit of labor involved with hydrotherapy. It's my understanding that there was actually a thing called malaria therapy and that the U.S. Public Health Service actually was involved for a few years. Yes, that's exactly right. Now, not just malaria, but um, but anything that would raise temperature. Sometimes they would inject foreign proteins to induce an immune response to get the fever up. Uh, oftentimes they use hot baths, as we mentioned, or even what they called heat cabinets. Anything that would get the body's temperature up, this would activate and bypass the viral bypass that, that was trying to subvert the uh, interferon response and actually did a, a very good job of, um, of clearing the virus. You may notice uh, in the last pandemic here that we have uh, a big difference between adults and children. Children have very strong innate immune systems. You'll often notice that children come down with a fever very quickly and, um, and they're able to clear these viruses very well. Our innate immune systems become less strong as we get older. They become more weak. And um, as opposed to, to the original SARS, which you may recall, almost everybody had a fever with that. With SARS-CoV-2, the amount of uh, percentage of people that had fever was much less, and it was able to be transmitted asymptomatically, and that's the reason why we were not able to contain SARS-CoV-2. One other thing about a fever, you've probably heard of something called Coley's toxin, which was injected into tumors that people had, especially sarcoma tumors. Uh, those are cancerous tumors. And the way in which Dr. Coley monitored the progress of that toxin, which was a gamish of, of bacteria, was temperature. And he, he would be able to determine when the treatment was working by how high the, the temperature got. Is that something you're aware of? 
No, actually, but that makes a lot of sense. Uh, temperature is the body's signal. It goes all over the body and it basically increases metabolism and it signals the immune system that there is an invader and that certain chemicals need to be secreted. Uh, as I mentioned, there was a the study that showed that lymphocytes at up to 38.5 degrees centigrade would not have any kind of change in interferon secretion. Once it hit 39 degrees Celsius, which is about 102 degrees Fahrenheit, there was a tenfold increase in interferon response. So it's not surprising. That is very impressive. Dr. Schwelt, I'd like to backtrack just a bit. You were suggesting that perhaps the popularity of sauna in Northern Europe might be related to the fact that people don't get a lot of sun exposure. And of course, you mentioned Battle Creek, Michigan, where there's also not a great deal of sun exposure. What I'm wondering is, what is the role of vitamin D with respect to our immune response? The grandmothers in uh, Sweden and Norway and Finland were Especially very Norway. fond yeah. of cod liver oil. Tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's it's it's uh, it's definitely something that we know. So if you look at the sort of an interesting observation here is if you look in the country right now in the United States, what hospital is probably the best suited to treat tuberculosis? It happens to be National Jewish Hospital in Denver, Colorado. And it, it's not by accident. It's because we've had a long history of experts that have gone to Denver. Why is that? Well, Denver is, is a very high place. And we've known for centuries, actually, especially in Europe as well, that if you want to treat specifically tuberculosis, there's two things that you want to have. Number one, you want to have a lot of vitamin D. And the thing that makes vitamin D is ultraviolet radiation. And ultraviolet radiation hates the atmosphere because the atmosphere is very good at filtering that out. So the closer you get to space, the higher amounts of ultraviolet B radiation you're going to have and the higher amounts of vitamin D that you're going to have available. You can also get that in cod liver oil as well. You're right. Uh, John Harvey Kellogg, who was the medical director of the Battle Creek Sanitarium, had a real issue when he wanted to treat tuberculosis. He realized that he was not at high altitude, but he had something else that he learned. The other thing that you have when you're at high altitude, by the way, is low oxygen. And that, ironically, is very important in treating uh, tuberculosis because tuberculosis loves oxygen. And if you get rid of oxygen, if you lower the oxygen, it's, it's less likely to thrive. So uh, John Harvey Kellogg traveled over to Europe where he learned a great deal from this eccentric guy, basically this, this uh, physician who was living up in the, in the Alps of Austria. And he had tremendous success treating tuberculosis, like 80% cure rates. And he had them up, up in, the, in the mountains. Uh, if, they weren't, if they were wearing clothes, it was a very small amount of clothes. They were being exposed to uh, lots of sunlight, lots of ultraviolet radiation, and they were getting the benefits of, uh, of fresh air, and they were getting the benefits of vitamin D and low oxygen. So he adopted that, brought it back to Battle Creek. He obviously didn't have the same environment there as they did in Austria, so he made it for them. He uh, created these light boxes um, and, uh, and, and had uh, the hydrotherapy and all the sorts of things that, that his health resort had. And he was able to get similar cure rates over there. But he adopted a lot of what he saw in Europe over into the United States. He Americanized it. He made these, these contraptions called light boxes. He uh, basically capitalized it. And then these, uh, these Europeans came over, watched what he did, and then took it back over to Europe, where they uh, made a lot of money selling these light boxes uh, in, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. That is fascinating history. What now, a, we have to jump forward a well, century or yeah, so. But what about cod liver oil? I mean, I, you know, we, we say, well, there was no science. Those grandmothers, they had no idea what they were doing or why they were doing it. But they kind of believed that when it came to the winter, those grandchildren needed to swallow that cod liver oil as bad <laughs> as it tasted. Yeah, so I had some were of they it doing myself. anything helpful? <laughs> there you go. What Was it beneficial? Yeah, it, it, there's no question that uh, vitamin D supplementation does help in uh, autoimmune conditions and also in tuberculosis. There's been a lot of data on that, and there's no question about it. Cod liver oil does contain a lot of, of vitamin D. Also, mushrooms, by the way, 
contains a lot of vitamin D as well. So yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of wisdom. Uh, as I start to learn more and more in science, I start to respect uh, my grandmother even more and more. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> we're, we're on that page with you. What else did our grandparents and great-grandparents do that might have been beneficial that we've lost? Because today, you come down with a cold, you run to the pharmacy, you get a multi-symptom cold reliever that has not just NSAIDs in it, but in addition, it probably has decongestants. We just learned that phenylephrine, PE, is ineffective as a decongestant. Well, actually, we've known that for a long time, but the FDA just decided that it right? was. Right. They also have antihistamines to dry us out. They have dextromethorphan to stop our cough. And they have mucolytics, so-called mucolytics with guaifenesin. So is any of that stuff doing anything for us or should we be taking vitamin C? And chicken soup. <laughs> yeah, no. So this is, the, this is the, the fallacy. The fallacy is, is that the symptoms that we come down with during a cold are somehow the problem as opposed to recognizing it that the symptoms that we have are the body's response to the problem. And there's a way of trying to get rid of it. So I think if we have that that understanding, then we would take a little bit different approach. So a fever is not the cause of the problem. The fever is actually the the first couple of steps down the road to recovery, and in 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 uh, basically activating the immune system. So something else that our grandmother would do often is if you had a cold or cold symptoms, she would she would heat a pot of hot water on the stove and the steam would come out and the steam would uh, make us inhale it, maybe make a little bit of a cone so that the steam would come uh, and we could breathe in that steam. So there's been actually some research on that. And uh, this was a very old paper. I, I don't have access to it at the moment, but it was an old paper that showed that breathing in inhalation of steam actually uh, accelerated the recovery of people with uh, a flu. Actually, the symptoms improved. Uh, when you breathe in this hot steam, we we know that that viruses, for the most part, don't replicate very well when they are at a higher temperature. It's one of the reasons why our body makes a fever, and so this type of of condition actually uh, in, improved. This type of treatment actually improved the symptoms of uh, upper respiratory tract infections. Anything else we can do to speed recovery, and anything we should be avoiding? Yeah, so I highly recommend getting out into the sun. There is a real issue today with the type of light that we are getting. Uh, and just sort of from a 30,000 foot view, this is the first time, about the last 10 or 20 years, this is the first time in human history that we have been exposed to light that is not full spectrum light, full uh, biological spectrum light. In other words, prior to that, uh, even with incandescent bulbs, with uh, candlelight, we were getting light all at the same time in the infrared spectrum, in the visible spectrum, and the ultraviolet spectrum. Uh, maybe not so much in the ultraviolet. Today, we have LED lights. We have windows that filter out um, near infrared light. And so we're getting visible spectrum without that other spectrum light. And we're starting to realize through studies that that might not be the best idea. And so if you want full biological spectrum light, you really need to get outside and into your environment and get that sunlight. So there's been a number of studies that have looked at the effect of near-infrared radiation on our bodies, that our bodies are not 100% opaque, that light could actually penetrate down into the, the deep recesses of our body, and that light can actually have effects at the, at the, uh, at the metabolic level in the mitochondria. You're listening to Dr. Roger Schwelt. That's S-E-H-E-U-L-T. He is Associate Clinical Professor at the University of California Riverside School of Medicine and Assistant Clinical Professor at the School of Medicine and Allied Health at Loma Linda University. He practices as a critical care physician, pulmonologist, and sleep physician at Optum, California. He's co-founder and principal presenter of the medical education company MedCram, which provides continuing medical education to health professionals. His passion is demystifying medical concepts. After the break, we'll talk more about raising body temperature. 
vitamin D, and sunlight. Vitamin C has a reputation for helping against colds. Is there any evidence? What about zinc? Does it help? And if so, what's the right dose? Dr. Schwelt will tell you all about zinc ionophores and quercetin for colds. We'll get his tips on staying healthy during cold and flu season. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, backed by 20 years of scientific research and the maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, CocoPro Cocoa Extract. Cocoa flavanols are among the most studied plant-based bioactives today and are clinically proven to promote cardiovascular and brain health for the long term, supporting a strong heart and better memory. Get 15% off your order of any Cocovia product by using the discount code PPOD15. Learn more at Cocovia and remember that discount code is PPOD15. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Memory Plus is formulated with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols, a level clinically proven to improve three different types of memory and support brain function. More information at cocovia.com. Today, we're talking about what to do when you catch the flu or a cold. Is there anything you can take to speed recovery? Zinc got a lot of attention during the pandemic. Are there any downsides to taking zinc on a regular basis? We're talking with Dr. Roger Schwelt, an associate clinical professor at the University of California, Riverside School of Medicine, and an assistant clinical professor at the School of Medicine and Allied Health at Loma Linda University. He's a critical care physician, pulmonologist, and sleep physician at Optum California in Beaumont. He's also co-founder with Kyle Allred of MedCram, a medical education company with CME-accredited videos. So, Dr. Schwelt, let me see if I've got this right. We should be probably raising our temperature rather than lowering it, as long as it doesn't get too high, and we'll ask you how much is too much. And we should probably be getting some sunlight, and maybe even some vitamin D in the form of either a supplement or cod liver oil. But what about Dr. Linus Pauling and all of the confusion and controversy around vitamin C or ascorbic acid? Yeah. So, yeah. So, I, in terms of fever, I would not go above 104, yeah, certainly 105. I've, I've never had a fever of 103 cause a problem in, in one of my patients. Uh, I would just, I would just recommend though that if somebody has a risk factor for a rapid heart rate like atrial fibrillation or something of that nature that you be careful uh, with raising the temperature too high and just monitor the uh the, the heart rate. And the story on colds? Yeah, so on colds the uh, I am I am not aware of randomized controlled trials that show that vitamin C is beneficial in colds. Although there is there is other lower levels of evidence that are enticing, and I would say hypothesis generating. So I think uh, studies still need to be looked at on that. Let me ask you about another popular um, nutritional supplement that people often use for colds, uh, and that would be zinc. What's the story on zinc? Yeah, so we actually do have some data on zinc. We we used to think, and we still, you know, st still might look at, at zinc as being a, a um, inhibitor of a protein that viruses use to replicate themselves, called RNA-dependent RNA polymerase uh, for those RNA viruses. Um, and this has been actually the source of 
the idea behind using zinc ionophores to get zinc inside the cell and therefore shut down this protein that the virus uses. In vitro, it seems to work well. The, the levels of zinc necessary intracellularly to have that happen are estimated to be much higher than what would actually happen in the human body. So it's unclear whether or not that's actually the mechanism how zinc works. But we do actually have studies that show that in people with cold, those that take zinc supplements seem to improve more quickly from their uh, cold symptoms than those that don't. Uh, what kind of dose are we talking about? So these are, are pretty high doses of zinc. This is the type of zinc that you get in a zinc lozenge. Now, if you, get, uh, if you buy zinc over the counter, the milligrams that you see in the container are uh, based on the are based on the anion that the zinc is uh, complex with. So you have zinc picolinate. That's going to be a different amount of milligram than zinc oxide or, or things of that nature. So you actually look have to look at the amount of elemental zinc, and they should mention that on the bottle. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that you have to be careful about, though, with taking more than four milligrams of elemental zinc uh, on a day over a long period of time is that elevated levels of zinc can actually reduce your copper levels. And that can cause other problems with the, your cardiovascular system. So in a short term, uh, taking high doses of zinc over a short period of time, no problem. Um, you can take uh, you know, how much is on the bottle. I don't know exactly what the amount of zinc was in that study uh, where they seem to do better. I'll have to look that up. But if you're taking on a regular basis more than four milligrams of elemental zinc, a day that can, over a long period of time, reduce copper levels. And very briefly, you talked about ionophores, and I'm thinking quercetin, and there are others that will help zinc get into the cell. What do you recommend? Yeah, so very early on in the pandemic, I actually recommended taking quercetin and uh, actually bought supplements for myself as well and, and started taking them. It may or may not be the way that it works. It, it is considered to be a zinc ionophore as well. And so in terms of that mechanism, it, it may be beneficial, but it also may have other effects as well. It's also uh, you know, an antioxidant and, and does a number of other things as well. Now, Dr. Schwell, you are... Uh, you have an expertise in pulmonology, so I'm hoping that we can uh, move away in a minute from talking about infections and talk then about other conditions that may affect the lungs. But let me just, as the wrapper on the infections, are people with chronic lung conditions more susceptible to infection? Yes, absolutely. So when you have a chronic uh, lung condition, this affects the immune system in your lungs, and it opens up, therefore, the ability for certain opportunistic infections to come in, things like um, viruses, uh, sorry, specifically fungus, and uh, certain types of bacteria like pseudomonas. And uh, I see that quite a bit in, in our patients with COPD, with um, bronchiectasis. This is a condition where the bronchi are dilated from repeated infections. And also with people uh, who have um, fibrosis of the lungs as well. Now, you mentioned COPD, and I'm going to ask you to explain it. Not only what do the initials stand for, which I do want you to tell us, but also what is it? Yeah, so COPD is a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and the operative word there is obstructive. So when you're taking a breath in, your lungs are getting bigger and the airways in your lungs are also getting bigger, and so they're nice and open, and, and air comes in in a patient with COPD without a problem. But when you're blowing the air out, because the lungs are getting smaller, the airways are also getting smaller, and in particular, in patients with COPD, those airways become very floppy, and they're very easily collapsed. So unfortunately, what happens is it takes much longer for the air to come out of somebody with COPD. And in some cases, the air gets trapped in the lungs and doesn't come out. And so that effectively limits your ability to breathe out and get rid of carbon dioxide. And so we typically see in patients with severe COPD an elevation in their carbon dioxide levels. And you can imagine that if it takes a long time to get the air out, then they're not going to do well in situations where they have to breathe quickly, which is exactly what happens when they're trying to exercise and walk around. They have to stop because they can't get the air out of their lungs. Now, Dr. Short, you mentioned 
fungal infections. And I'm thinking a lot of people who have lung problems, whether it's asthma or COPD, they are often given inhalers with corticosteroids, pretty powerful ones like fluticasone as an example. And corticosteroids kind of suppress the immune system and make people more vulnerable to fungal infections. It, it seems like it, it, it's a, a, a real challenge. How, how do you as a clinician deal with someone with asthma, for example, who then may be more vulnerable to a fungal infection that may make the breathing problem worse? Yeah, this is a very important question, and it's something that the guidelines are trying to tackle. So if you can imagine there are two obstructive lung diseases, there's asthma and there is COPD, as we talked about before. COPD and asthma are basically different flavors of the same problem, which is inability to get the air out. Asthma comes and goes, it's intermittent, and COPD is there all the time. Those diseases are sort of the prototypes. Now, there are three types of inhalers that we can give patients with COPD or asthma. We can give medications that uh, block what we call the muscarinic receptor, which causes um, constriction. Um, and so obviously we want to, we don't want the airways to be smaller. We want the airways to be bigger. And so a long acting muscarinic antagonist, we call it, is something that's going to make those airways bigger. There's another uh, inhaler type of inhaler that we can give called a long acting beta agonist. Beta agonists cause the uh, airways to become bigger as well, to, to dilate, to open up. And so those two are, are pretty easy to understand. The third, though, is exactly the type of inhaler that you just mentioned, which is an inhaled corticosteroid. Now, as it turns out, COPD does have some inflammation associated with it, but not nearly as much as asthma. Asthma has much higher levels of inflammation and is therefore one of the, is the disease that we use these uh, inhalers that are inhaled corticosteroids for first. So in other words, if I had an inhaled corticosteroid, I would much rather use that on the asthmatic than I would on the COPD or because the asthmatic has more inflammation. But as you mentioned, inhaled corticosteroids not only reduce inflammation in the lungs in, of asthmatics, it also knocks out the immune system and it can open up the risk of getting infections. So when, when they did a trial study on a combination medication inhaler of inhaled corticosteroids and a long acting beta agonist, they found that yes, these types of medications, yes, they do reduce the, the rate of exacerbations in an asthma. They do reduce the amount of hospital visits, but they also noticed that it did increase the risk of pneumonia as well in these patients. And there are some case presentations that I've looked at where people have gotten fungal infections, specifically aspergillus, in, uh, in long-term chronic use of inhaled corticosteroids. Now, this is an interesting topic because um, GINA, which stands for uh, the Global Initiative for the, um, for, for the Treatment of Asthma, um, would, this is basically a consortium that looks at all of the studies. They've recently looked at data that has, re has changed the recommendations to the point where they're now saying that for people who have asthma, it used to be that we would treat people with asthma with a, uh, an inhaled corticosteroid if they needed it, but their rescue inhaler would be simply albuterol, which is a, a rescue uh, dilator. They are now saying, based on the studies that, that – uh, people actually do better in terms of exacerbations if that rescue inhaler that they are taking not only contains a bronchodilator like albuterol, but also an inhaled corticosteroid. So we are actually going to see likely, based on these new recommendations, the use of inhaled corticosteroids going up, which is really interesting because what we're seeing globally is the incidence of asthma is also going up. It's one of the few respiratory diseases that is actually increasing in prevalence. Dr. Schwelt, we have heard a lot about air pollution in the last couple of years, especially when we have seen the sky get dark 
And, and I'm referring now to where we live, which is North Carolina. When there were forest fires in Canada, we were experiencing the complication as they were in New York City and in New England. And I'm sure in California, when there are forest fires, they also cause all kinds of problems for people with asthma and COPD. What about the risk of infections at the same time? Yes. So we definitely have uh, epidemiological studies that correlate this um, particulate matter that's called PM, and there's different sizes. There's coarse particles, fine particles, and ultrafine particles. And these have definitely been correlated to the development of COPD, of asthma exacerbations. And from there, we see that there is a correlation with infections as well. So there's no question that um, that these uh, modern day ambient air pollution factors are factoring into lung disease. Um, the other aspect of this also is indoor air pollution as well. And this is the reason why I'm, I'm such a, an advocate for making sure that you have windows that are open and that you're getting appropriate ventilation in the home. That's of course provided that the air quality outside your home is also good. Now, Dr. Schwell, as individuals, we have very little control over it the quality of air outside. Um, socially, at a big level, we might have some control. But how can we improve the quality of air inside our homes? Yeah, so there are uh, filtration devices, HEPA filters that can be used. They can be a little expensive. And so um, looking at ones that are reasonable and placed in places where you are most of the time, for instance, if you are sleeping in a bedroom, that might be a place that you'd want to have that air filter on um, because you're going to be in there for at least eight hours every day, hopefully, uh, if you're sleeping. Uh, so that is one way of doing it. The other way of doing it, and this is an emerging area that that is uh, a little controversial because it has to do with um, with fuels. And that is the use of, uh, of uh, basically propane or natural gas inside in terms of cooking. So one of the major areas of indoor air pollution is the burning of biomass. And that, that, could, that could certainly have to do with gas or propane stoves in your house. But it could also do uh, you know, globally with those that actually have open fires, believe it or not, in their homes uh, and, and are cooking and can get significant lung disease from that as well. So those are the two areas specifically that I can think of that uh, impact our indoor air quality. Dr. Schroll, you deal on a regular basis with people who have lung disease, and I'm wondering about the addition of corticosteroids, whether it's orally or whether it's inhaled, and the potential effect of corticosteroids on the immune system, does it make people more vulnerable? And what happens when you have a patient who develops a fungal infection in their throat as a result of the medicine they're taking for their COPD or asthma? Yeah, this is a real problem. It's inhaled corticosteroids are a double-edged sword. So they have a tremendous impact in the treatment of asthma where there is a lot of inflammation. It brings that inflammation down. But the cause of that inflammation is from the immune system. And so when it cripples the immune system, you, it also opens the patient up to getting these types of infections, specifically fungal infections and things of that nature. So when we have the ability to find the reason why someone might have asthma, it's much more beneficial to identify specific triggers and get rid of them so that we don't have to put them on inhaled corticosteroids. But if the alternative is that they are going to be ending up in the hospital uh, and and uh, very, very ill, sick, maybe intubated, then we, uh, we look at the risk-benefit ratio and we're willing to accept that some of these patients who get put on inhaled corticosteroids will be open to be getting these types of infections. The one that you mentioned specifically is thrush, we call it, and that is where you have a fungal infection that coats the back of the tongue. And that's mainly because the, uh, the inhaled corticosteroids land on the tongue and reduce the body's ability to get rid of that fungus. So rinsing your mouth out and uh, doing that after each uh, actuation of the inhaled corticosteroid is very important. Dr. Schwell, we all know how to breathe. We assume we all know how to breathe. Is there any value in breathing exercises? 
Yes. Um, in fact, there's some recent data, and I, I need to explore this a little bit more. There is some definite uh, benefits in specifically learning how to breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. And that uh, those benefits have to do with the way that the air flows through, the uh, humidification of the air, the filtration of the air, uh, even in exercise. I, I understand that there's been some uh, training in this area in terms of athletes that when they exercise, they're they're basically trying to still breathe in through their nose and breathe out through their mouth. There's also other uh, breathing exercise techniques where you, uh, for instance, breathe in for four seconds uh, and hold it for four seconds, breathe out for four seconds, and then hold it for four seconds. These are all sort of techniques that are used. I wish we had more uh, evidence for some of these things, and I think people are actually working on that, but there is some some at least preliminary, some benefits in terms of that type of exercise. It's also, by the way, used in uh, pulmonary rehabilitation, especially in COPD. So again, if you recall that in COPD, you have difficulty getting the air out because the airways are collapsed. And in breathing out through what we call pursed lips, that pressure causes a back pressure back on those airways that are collapsed, opens them up and allows that air to come out. So there's some definite benefits in learning how to breathe depending on the condition that one has. Dr. Schwelt, we are nearly out of time. We'd love to keep talking with you, but we we just can't. So we're going to ask you for your recommendations during this respiratory infection season, whether it's a cold or the flu. What do you recommend for our listeners to try to stay healthy? And what should they do if they start to sniffle or cough? Yeah, excellent question. So definitely ventilation is a key. We haven't talked about it, but if you're going to isolate yourself in a particular part of the house or in a room, if you've come down with a cold and you don't want anyone else to get it, crack the window open. It may be cold outside, but uh, put a couple extra layers on. Ventilation is so important. Secondly, I would make sure you're getting a lot of sun, even though the sun may be low in the sky. If it's up and you can see it, you can get the benefit of getting outside and getting some sunlight to keep yourself healthy. Consider doing hydrotherapy and not treating a fever if you develop the actual symptoms. And um, and how would you do that hydrotherapy? Ah, so the hydrotherapy is uh, if you go to hydro the number four COVID. Dot com. There's a, a beautiful website that shows you exactly how to do that by heating up, by using uh, hot baths. You could also do hot showers followed by cold at the end. There's a number of ways of trying to get that, um, that boost in interferon, especially when you are uh, under, the, um, under the, uh, the umbrella of an infection. Wait a minute. You said cold at the end? Yeah, yeah. So that uh, really helps with the boosting of, um, of the circulation, and it causes constriction of those blood vessels on the surface that locks in the heat. Brr, but okay, <laughs> I, I get the picture. What else? Um, well, also, you can, uh, you can try some of that steam inhalation. Be careful not to burn the inside of your uh, airway passages, so step away a little bit. But um, these are all... Uh, non-pharmacological ways of treating those illnesses. And if it gets worse, of course, you can go get tested and there are uh, medications that you can take if it's not getting better. But these are not like symptomatic medications. These are things that actually get to the root cause. And if you are tested positive for influenza? Yeah, there's a number of, of options that you can do. Uh, Tamiflu, of course, but there's other ones as well. Um, and, uh, and of course, getting... Uh, you know, getting appropriate care and making sure that you're looking for your fa and your family members to make sure they're not getting ill as well. And it probably makes sense to note that Tamiflu, Relenza, any of those antiviral medicines for flu are going to work better if you take them earlier in the infection. Exactly. Dr. Schwelt, what have you heard about what we have heard called Viral reactivation, they've sort of suggested this as a possible mechanism for long COVID, but also with things like asthma, that uh, if someone comes down with an infection, it may reactivate viruses that have been dormant in the body. 
Yeah. So a reactivation is something that happens uh, a number of, of times that we have herpes simplex reactivations. We have um, varicella zoster, which is the virus that's involved with shingles. So the, the main overarching theme here is that um, we get infected with all sorts of things. Our immune system does suppress it, keeps it out of the way. And it's not an issue unless, of course, we get to a situation where our immune system breaks down and is not able to uh, to do that. So the best way to avoid that is to avoid things that breaks down your immune system. And, and the way to make sure that that doesn't happen is the things that grandma always used to tell us, which is getting plenty of sleep. I would also advocate getting uh, plenty of sunshine, exercise, and good nutrition. And uh, that can minimize those kind of effects. Dr. Roger Schwelt, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Dr. Roger Schwelt, Associate Clinical Professor at the University of California Riverside School of Medicine and Assistant Clinical Professor at the School of Medicine and Allied Health at Loma Linda University. He's founder and principal presenter of the medical education company MedCram, which provides continuing medical education to countless health professionals. His passion is demystifying medical concepts. You don't have to be a medical professional to benefit from many of the free videos about COVID-19 or lifestyle approaches to good health. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. Today's show is number 1,369. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments about today's interview. You can also reach us through email, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. This week, you'll get some extra information in the podcast that we just couldn't squeeze into the show. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. When you subscribe, you can also have regular access to information about our weekly podcast so you can find out ahead of time what topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.